0: Good morning, everyone. Like Jonathan said, my name is Danny Carpenter. I'm part of the Pillar team here and a student over at Western Theological Seminary. Most Sunday mornings, I'm over at the Warehouse Pillar campus, and this morning, it's such a gift to be here with you all today. There's a beautiful story that I want you all to hear. It's a true story, it's a good story. At the heart of it, it's a story about faith, misplaced faith, actually, misplaced in a few specific ways that leads us to one specific question, where does our faith belong? Let me bring you up to speed on the story so far. The Spirit of God came down upon the disciples with tongues of fire after Christ ascended into heaven, and God's Spirit came down among us. Signs and wonders of God happening all around. 3,000 people repent and are baptized, the truly amazing event. And now, another amazing miracle. A beggar who could not stand walks, followed by a word about faith. Faith. Maybe you've heard of it. All of us have experienced it. If you, even if you don't believe in God, you still have faith that when that traffic light in front of you is green, that cross street traffic light is red. Some of us this morning have hearts bursting with faith, singing worship songs on the way here, seeing the Spirit of God moving. And others of us may be holding on to a faith in God that feels weak or maybe barely hanging on. No matter where you are, This story holds truth for all of us about faith. The ways we often misplace it and ultimately who we need to place it in. So Peter and John encounter a man who could not walk. He was begging by the gate on their way up to the temple. And as the man seated by the gate asked for money, Peter looked him in the eye and said, Silver and gold, I do not have what I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. As Peter extends his right hand, the man's ankles and legs are immediately made strong, and he gets up and is walking and leaping and praising God, and he was seen and noticed by many who had seen him begging for years. As you can imagine, this miracle now has drawn a crowd together at Solomon's portico, which is kind of like a porch outside of the temple, And so the healed man, leaping and clinging to Peter and John, gathers with the crowd together. And this is where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 3. While he, the healed man, clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's portico, utterly astonished. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people saying, Fellow Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, of Jacob, the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you rejected and handed over in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. And you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, and to this we are witnesses. And by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And it's this faith through Jesus that has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers also. In this way, God fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed to you, who is Jesus, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 21. Filled with references to the Old Testament, this small sermon of Peter challenges us in several different ways. Peter and John teaching the crowd and us, by extension, about faith, specifically highlighting misplaced faith. So misplaced faith, what, what does that even mean? What kind of faith is Peter talking about? Well, we have faith in many things. We, put our, we have faith in our alarm clocks that they'll wake us up in the morning. We have faith in that cup of coffee that'll give us that little caffeine boost that we need. And maybe some of us here this morning have faith that this year is the year of the Detroit Tigers. <laughs> no, the faith that Peter is talking about is so much more. Peter's talking about big faith, faith in what we believe to be true, true about God and who he made us to be, the faith that what you put your trust and your hope in when life gives you unexpected sorrow and joy, and I'm sure some of us know what it feels like to be brought with unexpected sorrow and joy. It's the why of why we're here, and ultimately it's this faith that we so often misplace. So in this story, Peter points out two particular examples of the crowd misplacing their faith. One of the ways we see the crowd misplacing their faith is by putting it in other people, placing their faith in comparison. In verse 11, we're told that the people who see the man healed are astonished. They've seen this man begging by the gate for years, and now he's leaping? I mean, imagine this. How is this possible? they believe that since they can't explain it otherwise, this has to have been done by Peter and John because, I mean, they're the ones standing there. But in the story, the crowd has misplaced their faith in Peter and John. It's easy for us to to point out this misplaced faith of the crowd, but don't we do this too? Faith in Jesus involves waiting and it depends on surrendering involves waiting and depends on surrendering. And I don't know about you, but waiting and surrendering don't necessarily come easy for me. And sometimes in that waiting and that surrendering, we start to look around and shift our eyes, glancing at other people, placing our faith in only the people that are around us. When we do this, we do this by putting our faith in relationships that will hopefully make us feel whole or Put our faith in our boss at work in hopes of feeling noticed or accomplished. And oftentimes, when we start to put our faith and trust in other people, we can find ourselves in a dangerous game of spirituality comparison. Again, I don't know about you, but I've certainly had moments in which I felt insecure because my faith doesn't look a certain way at certain times. Thinking to myself, if I just had faith that looked like that, I'd be holy like them. And if we're not careful, we can slowly start to define our faith by spiritual comparison. Telling ourselves, we're good, as long as we hit those certain spiritual benchmarks. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't look to other people for example. In fact, Jesus tells us to follow him, and Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We should look to other people who are following Jesus. Because the Christian life isn't meant to be lived on our own. But what I am saying is that our faith can become misplaced when our entire identity is wrapped up in how we compare ourselves to other people, when we find our ultimate worth being defined by those around us. When we put our faith in others, we start to care more about what the faith actually looks like than what we're putting our faith in. I was thinking about Pastor Tim Keller the other day after hearing about his passing, and He said something really profound about faith. He said this, It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you. He uses the analogy that if you're falling and have the ability to reach out and grab a branch to save you, even if your mind is full of uncertainty, having the smallest amount of faith to reach out and grab that branch will save you, and if you're certain that branch will save you, but you don't ultimately reach out and grab it, you're lost. The strength of the faith that we have will not save us, us, but what saves us is the object of our faith, and there's no stronger thing, person, or object to put our faith in than the branch of Jesus, and the crowd has not only misplaced their faith in others, but they've also misplaced their faith in themselves and their own abilities. And that's another way that we can often misplace our faith. A slightly embarrassing story that I have the scars to, to prove occurred when I was in preschool. One day, during recess, I put on a beautiful blue superhero cape, and I thought I was Superman. I was pretty sure that I was indestructible. So indestructible, in fact, that during recess, I went outside and saw the play structure out on the playground and climbed to the very tallest part, which, of course, is super easy work for a superhero. And when I was up there, thinking I had the strength of Superman, I decided to leap off. And in about a second, I realized that, even though I had the cape of a superhero, I didn't have the powers of a superhero. I ultimately fell to the ground and a thud full of disappointment covered in scrapes. And how often do we think that we can take on all of life's challenges on our own? We often tell ourselves, if I can just do blank, then I can do blank. If I can just provide for my family, I can be a perfect parent. If I can just get the right grades, I can finally make my parents proud. We put our faith in our own hands. And let's be honest, one of the great, this is one of the great challenges of the faith of American Christianity. I mean, we're the people of manifest destiny. If you want it, you can get it, get yourself up, dust yourself off, and go on at it again. But that's misplaced faith. Peter tells the crowd, when they put their faith in their own hands, they act in ignorance. In longing for a Savior, they put their faith in themselves, rejecting Jesus and ultimately handing Him over. And yet we do the same thing. We become impatient with God, think we can do things better on our own, and then reject Jesus in the process of doing so. Then we run into trouble when we believe that we can somehow earn our faith in God by our own actions. It can be easy to think, if we dig deep enough in ourselves, we can climb some sort of ladder up to God. We think that God's waiting for us to muster our own strength to reach Him, like once we do all the right things, we'll enter into His presence. But the beauty of the gospel is that we don't have to climb our way to God, but instead God comes to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, by grace. Real spiritual power comes from knowing that all action done by God is done by the Spirit and not our own power, strength, or ability. By grace, through faith, we know God. God's gift of grace comes before our faith and it's what allows us to ultimately put our faith in Him. As we've seen so far in the story, it's about faith. We've seen the crowd often, like us, misplace faith in themselves, misplace faith in other people. And, of course, those two extremes are not the only way that the crowd and, and us alongside them misplace our faith. We so often place our faith in different things or desires or idols. And this ultimately brings us to the question, what do we really need to put our faith in? Verse 16 says, And by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong. It's Jesus' name that has the power to heal and make us whole. When we talk about the power of the name of Jesus, what, is that, what does that mean? Theologian N.T. Wright says this about the power of the name of Jesus. He writes, he writes this. He says, Using the name of Jesus isn't a matter of a new kind of magic mumbling a secret word, a kind of abracadabra, which will make things happen automatically. There has to be faith. Faith in the one who speaks the name and faith in the one who hears it. Other names used in magic keep people enslaved to the power of the name itself and the one who invokes it. But the name of Jesus makes people grow up, become whole people, rinsed out and renewed, standing on their own feet, literally, morally, spiritually, and personally. The name of Jesus isn't some kind of spiritual formula where A plus B equals C. It's the name that changes everything. It gives freedom, and it changes our lives. When we put our faith in others or ourselves, we're left with this kind of false illusion of freedom. We're not actually free, but we're held by our own ideas of control. We get tangled in the ways that Those who we trust the most eventually let us down. But true and full freedom can only be made known to us by the grace of God allowing us to put our faith in his name. Between undergrad and grad school, I moved to Durham, North Carolina. It was a new city, new people, and at first I was having a hard time finding community. And then one night, my friend, the, my recent friend named John, invited me over to his parents' house for dinner. They were having tacos, and he said it, I couldn't, couldn't miss it. So, looking, being grateful to be invited, I decided that I'd, I'd come along. Having never met his parents, I was a little nervous. When we got to their house, as, I, as we walked up to the door, John put his arm around my shoulders and introduced me to his wonderful parents and it was a great night but what I didn't understand at the time was that when John placed his arm around me and welcomed me into his home he was advocating for me leading me inside of his parents house and I was greeted with warmth from them not because i had done anything to to prove that I was worthy but simply because I was John's guest. Nothing I could have possibly done on my own would have gotten me to that dinner, but it was the invitation from John that ultimately got me to to a seat at that table. Did I have faith that there would be dinner? Absolutely. But without an invitation from John to be his guest, I wouldn't have been there in the first place. And you might be drawing the parallels here already, but this is like the way that Christ advocates for us. He puts his arm around us because of who he is and not because of anything that we've done. God's invitation to us comes before our decision to put our faith in him. Not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. And this morning, looking at our story You might feel so far away from the people who rejected and crucified Jesus, knowing fully and truly that Jesus is the Savior of the world and the Savior of your life, and praise God. But there also might be those of us, and I can sometimes find myself here as well, seeing yourself all too clearly in the crowd of people who are so quick to reject Jesus. And this passage has good news for those of us who feel close to God as well as those who feel anger or distance or doubt about God. The beauty of this story is found not in our own faith, but by the grace of God extended to us through Jesus. By grace, through faith, we know God. Meaning that we have faith only by grace and not by anything that we've done. By God's grace, we're given the opportunity to put our faith in Jesus. And it's through that faith in Jesus that we know God. And having access to that faith in the name of Jesus Christ gives all people the opportunity to, as verse 19 says, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. All people. Hear that incredible good news, all people. If the very people who rejected Jesus and crucified him are extended the grace to repent and believe in Jesus, then this has to include us too. Peter preaches grace to the crowd because Jesus gave him that grace. I mean, Peter. We know Peter denied Jesus three times, if you remember that story about the rooster crowing. And now God uses Peter to heal a man who could not walk. And this is the heart of Jesus. No matter what we've done, no matter how far we feel that we've strayed, no matter what our faith currently looks like, Jesus invites us to repent, to turn to God, and to place our faith in Him. And that's the grace of God. So why? Why do we do this? Why do we place our faith in Jesus? As Christians, we seek to love others, encourage each other, engage in scripture, and pray together and worship with one another. And what's the significance of doing this together? Is it to make ourselves feel good about ourselves or to check certain spiritual boxes? No, it's because the realness of Christ in our lives should spur us on into community where we celebrate that God's grace allows us to have faith in Him. How else do we go on in a world that so often feels chaotic or heavy? Because we believe that God is still working for good in the world, bringing life to death. And in the same vein, why do we keep coming to this table every week? Because, because Christ promises to meet us here in communion, just as he promised to remain faithful to us even when our own faithfulness fails us. This story is about faith, the ways we often misplace it, and who we must place it in. And it's also a story about grace. And we come to this table to remind ourselves that only by grace we put our faith in the name of Jesus.